and welcome to Movies and Tea. This is the second episode of our Creature Feature season. As previously we looked at them. And now we move on to The Birds from 1963. Produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And loosely based on the 1952 story of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. Um, Hitchcock himself directing this film only three years after laying the foundation for the slasher genre with uh, Psycho, which along with Peeping Tom would pave the way for the likes of Black Christmas to introduce the 80s into the world of the slasher movie. But with The Birds, um, again it is Hitchcock taking on another genre staple, this time the creature feature as he tells the story of a series of unexplained bird attacks on Bodega Bay in California over the course of a few days as the residents try to figure out why the birds are suddenly forming their uprising. Um, at the same time, socialite Melanie Daniels, who played by Tippi Hendren, um, hooks up with the lawyer Mitch Brennan, uh, played by Rod Taylor, um, and with suspicion, assuming that perhaps she's the one causing her presence on the island, is causing the birds to go wild. But um, certainly a noteworthy film on Hitchcock's filmography, um, and one which has certainly had its, uh, carried its legacy, much like Psycho, over the years to become one of his uh, favourites and probably one of his most well-known films up there with the likes of Not by Northwest, Rope and Vertigo. But, Kim, I mean, we were in discussion before we came on that neither of us are real big sort of Hitchcock fans. Um, I think we're both aware of who he is, but uh, we're not... We can't say we've, either of us have particularly died into his filmography, so... Um, I was interested to uh, to know really how, what you thought of the birds. Well, I, I mean, I think that you know. Also, before we discuss, was the birds was something that we both had seen prior one time, but it's kind yeah. of still a little fuzzy. <laughs> it's been a long enough time for it to be fuzzy. Um, in the rewatch, where you're watch, I, for me watching this, I felt pretty much like it was a new movie, like I had never seen it before. Basically, I didn't remember much of anything except for you know the iconic scenes i guess right yeah of course uh but i mean the birds is really is 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 really good in the sense that it's not your creature feature and i think that you know when previously to this as well you also sent me the trailer of of this (laughs) which was really really fun um and it brought up a really good point like a lot of really good points that kind of like anchor into this film really well but at the same time still didn't give away the movie and the movie itself is basically anchored on this whole mystery of why the birds are revolting. But but at the same time, it's just, I don't know if we actually ever get an answer. And I think that's the whole suspense behind the whole thing is, you know, what started this. And, um, you know, we it, it's, 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 it's basically like an everyday creature. It's not like, you know, I don't go and jump into the water every day and, you know, expect a shark attack, right? Or, or you know, go to the tropics and expect like a anaconda, anaconda attack or something like that, right? But you go into you go into this movie, but birds are everywhere around you, and they bring up a really good point, and that really induces the fear is that if the birds were, I think one of the characters who talk about it is it talks about like being, you know, I forgot what the term is for 
someone who studies birds. <laughs> it's just basically if birds and all the species of birds were to revolt, there would be no surviving it because, you know, birds exist everywhere. You know, I look outside the window and there's, you know, I had I had noisy cardinals on New Year's Day, you know. <laughs> so basically, it's, 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 it's a really nice concept because I think that the most... In, the thing that induces fear the most is the thing that you least expect and the things that are in your everyday life that you don't expect to be harmful and when Hitchcock kind of flips it around and obviously it's Daphne du Maurier's uh, plan like idea but when you use this concept and this premise and then you flip it around into something being scary it's like taking your basic everyday thing and changing your point of view on it like adding some sort of danger to it and I think that that's what makes this work the most yeah definitely so and i mean you mentioned already about the the trailer and i love the the trailer because it's got it doesn't actually show any real footage from the film at all it's just hitchcock in his usual charming way saying oh i'm going to be presenting this lecture about the birds and at the same time like highlighting all the many ways that birds would have the right to be pissed at humanity um Hitchcock himself actually had a fear of birds, so in many ways this plays into his own personal fears and uh, dislikes of birds. And with the when we, as I said, when we look at look at this uh, film, I mean, obviously this introduces us to Tippi Hendren, who Hitchcock well is well on record as having a bit of an obsession with, much like blondes. He loves blondes in his movies. So the a uh, couple of the the usual Hitchcock and Shrakes in there. You've got, uh, as I said, we've got Blondes. We've got his wonderful cameos, because like Tarantino, he likes to work himself into his own movie, often really clever cameos. Um, in this one, we see him walking two dogs out of a pet shop. <laughs> it's not like Tarantino's, look at me, cameos, that's for sure. Um, one of my favourite ones is um, he cameos as a before and after model on a, the front of a newspaper for a weight loss. Um, this just held up randomly in front of the camera because one of the uh, characters you read in the newspaper and you see on the front it's got this advertisement for weight loss um, powder and it's like he's like the before model <laughs> um, and we obviously have the MacGuffin um, in which case obviously is just the birds um, who and with this one I mean it's there's some really clever filmmaking tricks in this which you don't really realize until you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff and they talk about how they were like how they were shooting like some of the footage here and um for example like when we see the scene of like the crows on the on the climbing frame about there's only about three or four real crows the rest of them are all cardboard or stuffed (laughs) but your eye goes straight to the the movement on there and it sort of fills in the blanks that the rest of them are there. There's another shot as well where Rotella is um, opening a door which isn't there, but it's all just done with the light, so we fit, assume there's a door there. Um, so there's lots of really clever tricks in this this film, and I think it's what raises it perhaps being above our usual sort of creature feature fare. Um, and I think, as I said, it 
when you're watching this little movie, I think, do you think, like, the fact that we have a director like Hitchcock behind the, obviously, the camera on this one, that it sort of raised it up in the same way that, like, Spielberg raises Jaws up from being just another shark movie? I think so. I mean, there are, you know, there are some... Because it's hard for me to judge a film based on, you know, the master of suspense, which Hitchcock is known for. Because yeah. I've only seen, like, two, three movies of his in, like, a, what, 60, almost, se- like, almost 70 film credit type of director. So you're, you're talking about a lot of movies in, in, in a man that I don't really know too much about. And, you know, so I, I think that it does. Um, but at the same time, I can't, you know, pinpoint exactly the things that he's doing really, really well. But I just think that the movie in a, as a whole is very enjoyable. Maybe like the, maybe like a lot of the, I don't know, these type of like, tangents of having um, the romance bit in there feels a little bit weird at times. Um, like, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, like those things feel a very, very odd because it's like one moment they're like this and it's like next moment it's like, oh, they're in love, you know, like type of thing. It doesn't make really a lot of sense in, in, in that sort of plotting. But also the film doesn't po- put a lot of focus on that. Their focus is really, really on, um, is really, really on the birds that are surrounding them and the attacks and and the different places that they're attacking and basically the characters as they as they try to get away from it right um mm-hmm. as the attacks kind of get more and more intense over time yeah definitely say so the first 40 minutes of this movie are really weird <laughs> um because obviously we, we open i mean we open in san francisco where we've obviously got uh melanie so tippy hendra's character meeting um rod taylor's lawyer mitch and they meet in this bird bird shop and he's there looking to buy some lovebirds for his sister's birthday um and he basically recognizes her because of she was in court regarding a practical joke that went to uh, astray but we never actually told what she did so it, it just it, there's all these like odd bits and pieces we find out about her that she like attends all these different courses in college and she has different jobs and she likes playing practical jokes these odd bits of information we get about a character but we never actually get anything like concrete of what she actually does I don't know. There's that one situation that they did where the mom brings it up, where uh, where they saw in the news about her jumping into a fountain in Italy or something like that. Um, and that was one of the more detailed things. Whether that was the cause of why she went to court, I don't really know. Like I got a bit lost in that plot. Um, but I think it's just a. I think it's just really a plot point to be. To be to show like the type of character she is that she's you know very daring but also misunderstood because she goes along and you know talks about it that oh this you know this wasn't exactly what happened and it was kind of like a rival newspaper who who wrote about them you know type of thing yeah of course um but the actual shots of the pet shop are pretty wild like when you look at the selection of birds they have they got like a toucan yeah. <laughs> for sale. They've got all these, like, um, they've got all these birds that are just, like, crammed in this one cage. It's, like, pretty wild. Like, the standards for, 
you know, animal welfare in pet shops. Much the fact that, you, as I said, you could go out and buy a toucan. Exactly, in, in San Francisco on top of that. But I get it, like, San Francisco is warm, but a toucan is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, is, is you just like, just going to go and buy an exotic pet at the, the pet shop. I mean, you can't even, like, go and buy a cat now, like, in the pet shop. You have to have, like, home visits and stuff. And this is a rescue cat. You have to, like, have free home visits and, like, have to be, like, matched with your cat before they give you. It's not just in case you, like, turn up and it's like, yeah, I'm going to have my cat. Really? Wow. Yeah, we had to, we had to, like, go and, first of all, we had to, like, pick our, pick our cat. This is when we got Albert our first cat yeah. and we had to like pick the cat and then we had to like go to the woman's house where he's being um kept through cat's protection and so we had to have a meeting with the cat to see if he he really liked us enough and then we had to have a home visit to ensure that our house is suitable for the cat and it's like wow <laughs> i just thought you know you turn up it's like we have space we would like a cat but apparently it's not Certainly in the 60s, it apparently was. You just turn up, it's like, yeah, I want to buy a toucan. Well, because I'm, I'm not sure, like, I can't, spe- I can't speak for the U.S., obviously, because I never lived yeah. there. But, I mean, for, for us, when I adopted my cat, it was, like, the two cats I had were adopted. They, they, were, they never had to go through that. Basically, the pet shop, you, you spend time with them to see which cat you want, you know, which gets along with you more, which temperament kind of works for you the best. But that's like a 30-minute thing, and then that's it. They sell you the cat, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so. They really want to make sure it's going to a good home, so. Well, I think that that's really, that's really good, because, I mean, if you think about, you know, like, obviously a side note, but it's a really good point to bring up in the sense that nowadays it's everybody here wants, I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but I guess because you guys didn't have curfew um, during lockdown, when we have curfew, what happens is that the only thing you can do, the only exception to other major emergencies, like needing to buy medicine and doing like, you know, going to the hospital or something yeah, that you were allowed after the curfew. Another thing was you would be able to walk your dog. And you had to walk, you were, and that's why in that time, a lot of people bought dogs. <laughs> I don't know if it was because of the curfew, but a lot of people bought dogs and they drove up the prices. Like buying a dog now is ridiculous. Like the pricing is just wild. And, and it's, it's crazy because you think about it. It's like, well, what after, what about after the lockdown? <laughs> you know, are people going to start giving up their dogs? <laughs> like it. it you know, I think I think you know in a lockdown atmosphere, yeah, you can take care of your dog, you're home all the time. But when you're not, then you know it's still a responsibility. You can't just <laughs> yeah, you can't just just ignore it because the dog will get you back. <laughs> um, and yeah, so now I have three cats, and how do they repay me by knocking everything over in the studio constantly? <laughs> but yeah, the I mean this initial sort of flirtation between Melanie and Mitch. It, I thought, well, for, for 1963, it was kind of hot. She's there pretending she works in the pet shop with her bomb-proof hair. That hair wasn't going anywhere. It's so sprayed in places. <laughs> oh, but I think you know, I think that, you know, their first encounter was very natural. And even up to the point yeah. where, you know, she wittingly type of like is able to find him and trace down where, where he is and whatnot. A little creepy, okay, I'm... No, no, no joke on that part. <laughs> a little creepy. It has been raised. <laughs> um, 
the fact that, yeah, she goes and just basically stalks him down to bring him these lovebirds that he was originally buying for his, his sister. And, she, I mean, she charts a whole plan, uh, boat to go over there. Yeah. Um, she sort of hangs out with the local teacher, Melanie. Uh, um, who's played Annie, by... Annie, yeah. Yes. Sorry. Um, yes, he goes and uh, hangs out with... Uh, with Annie, who it turns out also used to date Mitch, because I think there's a real lack of bachelors on this island. <laughs> but um, he's got an overbearing mother called Lydia, who basically dislikes all women in Mitch's life. So the only woman he has in his life is uh, his mother and his, his younger sister, who um, is played by. I'm just getting this up now. Veronica Cartwright. Yeah, she's played by Veronica Cartwright, who would go on to play Lambert in Alien, and just be a fine screen screen sort of second billing one. No, she has um, she has a lot of fun memories of of working on the film um, when they've asked about Veronica Cartwright about it, and she said like Hitchcock would like send her down to the wine cellar with like this list of wines, and he'd teach her how to cook a steak because you know she'd be married at some point soon. It's good to know how to keep a nice home, and he was just like a very kindly, like uncle figure to her. And he would like explain any questions she had about how they were like shooting the film and stuff. He would like ha- happily answer all her questions and that. So, but um, yeah, she has um, a lot of happy memories and talks about like how they were. There's uh, scenes where they're supposed to be running from the birds, how they had them on the treadmill, and they would just constantly keep shooting it faster and faster. But they would get to the point where the tremor was running so fast they would just basically fly off the end like uh, bowling pins so <laughs> but uh, yeah she would have like bird seed in her hair so that these trained birds would like fly down and um, and, and peck it and amongst the because they had a number of like trained birds they had a, had a seagull that was like wired up so it couldn't like fly off and peck people and they also had um, a couple of trained ravens and one of the ravens which it seems to be a, a raven trait was kind of star truck and like really liked having its photo taken with like various cast members including uh, Tippi Hendren there's a number of photos of her with this raven and they trained it so it would like come and peck you and stuff And but um, the ravens that they had on the the crow city of angels also were very starstruck as well they liked there's one crow that liked doing all the close-up work so i don't know what it is about ravens and crows that dislike the attention <laughs> but um obviously back to the the film as she's obviously coming over to the island she gets um attacked by a gull and um at night while she's hanging out uh, with, with Annie, uh, another ghoul flies into the house and we get these little little subtle things that, you know, things are going astray. Even like back in San Francisco, we see like the birds are being stirred up by something. Um, so we get all these little subtle hints that something's not, um, something's afoot in the bird kingdom. They're watching us with envious eyes as they plot their revenge against humanity. So... <laughs> And then you wonder whether it's because because of the lovebirds, right? Did it start because of it? If it is because of Melanie, did it start because of seeing the caged lovebirds traveling? I don't know. Like, it, it, it's, uh, you know, like, I think it's, it's ridiculous to say that it started with Melanie. 
Yeah. Because it did move further, right? It didn't move. I think she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop the uh, local residents from blaming her. It's kind of like um, when you watch The Mist and you've got that yeah. um, that crazy woman who's sort of like, yep, it's their fault. <laughs> Everyone's very quick to get behind this theory, it has to be said. But um, from here, we obviously, she turns up at, um, at Mitch's sister's birthday party, which soon goes astray as uh, seagulls start attacking all the guests. And uh, in one of the first big set pieces of the film, which I think is really is really well handled. We get more flirtation between um, Mitch and Melanie. Again, it's real heated stuff for 63. <laughs> They're drinking scotch on the, in the dunes. Um, do you, I mean, how did you find like the romantic stuff between Tim Henson and uh, Rod Taylor? I've, I thought it was fine. It's very charming. I thought it was very fun. Like I, I'm not like I'm not someone who's gonna be. Oh, you know, uh, I, I, I do watch a bit. Like I had watched a bit of you know, like Audrey Hepburn times and stuff like that. So, uh, I, I'm okay with films like this. Like it doesn't bother me. I think there's a there's an elegance is the way I usually like to say it in. In the '60s, it's not about you know, really the the way it is now. It, there's an elegance in the romance that's being shown, um, maybe a little bit of subtlety, a little bit of you know that sort of stuff, that that sort of thing. And I think it it works here to a certain extent. I think that as the film goes along and the creature feature elements start coming in, their whole romance thing feels a little bit disposable, but. Um, the lead up to it is, I think it's done pretty well. I, I was really like, I thought they were having so much fun. Um, especially like, you know, it's like I said before, um, I did, I didn't finish my thought, but I was like, uh, when, even when she's going and she tracks him down and like going to the boat and uh, chartering the boat to, to, to the place and kind of like doing this whole thing, I thought it was pretty, I thought it was pretty fun. Like I thought it was, it, this woman is very, very charming. I mean, aside from the fact that she has some stalker elements to her, but <laughs> she's still very charming. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, the extent that she went to meet this guy that, that she met in a pet store and um, probably didn't really know a lot about either. So again, from here, we, uh, the, the family unit gets attacked this time by sparrows which swarm the chimney um, interestingly those are real sparrows and there are hundreds of them they basically built a set within a set for the for the, um, for the home sequence um, and they would just basically had a box on the other side of the, the fireplace and they just lift the lid and then they all swarm in <laughs> and I thought it was like an optical illusion but no there are that many birds being pumped into one set so <laughs> which is um, a pretty insane you know it's, it's a pretty insane shot it's one I forgot was completely there because you kind of when you because of this film's slow place in pop culture you remember like certain scenes such you know like the aforementioned climbing frame scene where all the crows are amassing and um, the uh, the scene later on where you see the seagulls sort of like swarming in the air so you remember certain things but you forget like other scenes such as such as this scene where all the birds are sort of swarming into yeah. the house and and that and I think it's while the film does have a couple of gory elements we see a couple of bodies with uh, the eyes pecked out and um, 
sort of building the building the tension there. It's it is very sort of subtle with the gore, but the actual set pieces of the film I think are still really really quite effective. Um, whether I would call it scary or not, I think it loses some of its effect after the first time you watch it. So this time I didn't get the same sort of shocks I did the first time I watched it. But certainly I was still very impressed with the set pieces. Um, and certainly seeing like hundreds of sparrows being pumped into a tiny ass room was, yeah. uh, was still a very, very interesting look visual there. So. Yeah, because, I mean, using the different birds is really good because it kind of shows that it's not just, like, they're not just targeting one type of bird in that sense, you know. You can easily be, oh, you know, like, ravens are really creepy and they're mm. blackbirds and stuff like that. And, and um, black in color, not blackbirds. Okay? <laughs> the film goes goes out of their way to talk about the difference, so might as well not mix it up. And... Like, they have a more sinister type of thing. So a lot of times when we watch horror movies or whatnot, like, blackbirds are usually, oh, you know, like, black cats or, or bad omens. But then, you know, you watch something like this, and it's kind of like everything in the bird kingdom is going crazy. It's not just the gulls, and it's not, you know... <laughs> I was surprised they didn't do some pigeons or something, you know? Maybe they did, but I missed it. <laughs> yeah, that would have been... It's, it's sort of like, well, what birds do you have? And they don't go like with like the big birds of prey, but there's not like an eagle or yeah, a vulture something like that. It, yeah, it it is all sort of like the very sort of day to day birds that that you see, and I think that sort of adds something to it because it's sort of taking that that everyday thing and turning it into the object of terror. Um, so to speak. So it's like we all know where a seagull is. We all know where a sparrow is, and it's all like, well, why did they decide to turn on us? And I think that's the where the fun of the film comes. And I think, as I said, once you get that first forty minutes out of the way, the film sort of really starts finding its its um, its footing. And it's really from the the birthday party sequence onwards. I think it's just a real rip roaring ride um, for myself, at least. And certainly when we go. We have um, from here we go into like the iconic uh, scene of uh, the crows chasing the school kids down the road, which is followed with that really bizarre discussion in the diner where you've got certain people like you know saying yeah the birds are coming for us, and then you've got other people like the old woman who's an ornithologist who's like no that would be ridiculous. Why would birds be attacking people? And if they did, then we would all be doomed. Yeah followed by one of the most stupidest moments of the film um, as we see someone being attacked by birds as they're filling their, filling their car, causing this gas leak to go down the road, which apparently some guy smoking a cigarette can't smell despite <laughs> the fact he's standing in a pool of gasoline Well, he, he can't smell and he can't see, apparently because <laughs> um, It's so bloody stupid Um but it's it's a fun chaos scene, yeah. and we get to see some explosions there. And we also get to see a scene which was um, homaged in The Simpsons, where she's in the phone box and the gulls are flying against the window. And there's a scene in The uh, Simpsons where you got Mo Man and these um, at the bird sanctuary, and he's like, "Oh no, we need a big bird, big bo- uh, seed ball." He's like, "No, that won't do. We need a bigger one." <laughs> Uh, there's also a really amusing shot of the guy in the car with the seagull in the back that seems to be like an irate passenger. 
which also made me laugh. The, just that whole scene is so stupid, but <laughs> I'm surprised that it got kept in. But I think that that's the thing, is that a lot of these scenes is... I'm not sure if Hitchcock really meant to be, like, oh, super creepy in the sense that, like... Um, like, I think there was still a little bit of... Maybe it was the style back then. I mean, like, I'm, like I said, I'm not really well-versed in anything before. I don't know, the 80s or something like that. Um, other than Disney movies. So, <laughs> but, I mean it's it's it, it could be the style back then and that's and that's the thing is like there's like in a creature feature what it what defines a creature feature like how serious do we want to take that and that was a discussion i recently had about shark films on the deep blue sea podcast about you know shark films being like do you prefer them being realistic or do you prefer them being a bit goofy you know like farther more more you know imaginative basically and I think that for creature feature in general, I think that argument applies in the sense that here there's there's something that is a little bit out of your imagination in the sense that we never would expect birds to be the object of terror. But at the same time, when you think about these different scenes that he does, which kind of makes you kind of laugh a little and, and, and has that moment there, I think that it, it's nice. Like, you're not taking the movie completely seriously because this is a creature feature, I mean... I personally don't take creature features very seriously. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate some scenes that, you know, are meant to, maybe they're not meant to be. I think for some people watching this, they could be terrifying. But at the same time, it could be kind of, but at the same time, it is kind of goofy. <laughs> and then you, you can get some, it kind of loosens up the tension a little bit. Yeah, I mean, those, the, the effects of their time so some yes. of them like so when you see like the seagulls swarming because I mean that's why I like again Hitchcock establishes the fact that many of these birds are drawn to fire yeah no idea why but they apparently are so when you have the gasoline explosion it's sort of like a case of like oh no this is going to draw the birds and then we see them the yeah but it brings like a big sky. swarm yeah yeah which is really cool um Cool sequence and especially I love the fact that we're seeing it from so far up it reminded me oh it made me wonder if it was like a, an inspiration for um, the similar scene in um, Romero's Night of the Living Dead which we see more clearly in uh, the remake of Night of the Living Dead which which is the same scene where we've got like the gasoline um, explosion right because um, we have a similar sort of flame trail there and all the chaos erupting around it but um yeah basically they then go and uh hold up at the the family home but the crows obviously uh decide that they're going despite the winds being boarded up that they're going to still try and break in and again more movie magic there with uh the door which they basically fitted bird beaks uh, prosthetics onto the end of hammer and just had like production crew hammer away at the door <laughs> to uh, simulate the birds trying to beak through so movie magic yes <laughs> but yeah I think the the siege sequence at the end I think is again really well done especially with the fact that the girl you don't think is going to be uh, sort of scaved ends up again sort of like the worst of it when she stumbles into the attic so yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's it kind of breaks the logic of, of you know the normal the normal concept of, of creature feature where you know or even back then horror where 
you have the scream queen type of feel and and you never expect them to be in the middle of you know being they get caught in the mess usually but they they never they never seem to get hurt too much they always seem to be able to escape yeah and it's weird as well the fact that after she does get attacked that the the mother Lydia is willing to then accept her and it's sort of like the fact that she's been a bit scarred up and stuff. It's like she's no longer this um, alluring beauty because she's you know she's just suffered a bird attack. So it sort of like removes some of the threat from her because she seems like um, quite caring towards her, almost like motherly towards her. And I, it, think, I just wasn't sure if that. I think uh, that that's the thing. I think that deep down, this is kind of like a nod to the what they were talking about in the beginning because, I mean. When like obviously I've never read the the book for Daphne Du Maurier, but I know that she's really great at building characters. And I mean I've only read other book, and and that's Rebecca. And I remember that being a really like character focused type of story. And in this one, you know, you spend time in previous conversations about Annie talking about the mom being kind of like, oh, you know, my, you know, she doesn't want her son to, to, to be kind of you know, uh, to kind of leave her. And when you have the situation happen, I guess that what she wants, I guess what the mom's character is and what really enforces it at the end is that it's a nod back to that conversation about her having that type of, that it kind of reveals what her character really is, is that maybe it's not the fact that she doesn't want anyone to leave her, but it's the fact that she likes being a mother. She likes being needed. And when Melanie is all, you know, distraught and stuff, she's not this power woman you know that type of thing where where she she's she's so big in the world and stuff like that there's a softer side to her and a lot of that is taken away when when she's kind of all 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 destroyed from the situation and hurt and whatnot and i guess you know in some ways because she didn't wake anybody up she kind of took the (laughs) she kind of took the fall for someone else in the family imagine someone had gone instead of her yeah, she she took the initiative and look where he got her. It's, it's a it's quite amazing. I mean, when you look at like the final scenes of the family just walking out past the like hundreds of bears yeah. that are just outside the house and stuff, and the love bears are the only bears that don't become aggressive throughout this whole thing. Like the chickens stop eating, and as I said, we see the sparrows and the crows and the seagulls all get there. Um, their revenge in, in in whatever way, and there was supposed to be another shot at the end of this film where we saw the we saw the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was like the 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 climbing frame, and it was like covered with crows. Mm. But unfortunately, uh, due to the production uh, costs and just the time, they didn't have a chance to shoot it. So that would say instead we end up with this sort of very open ended mm. sort of ending um, of them just driving away and we hear obviously on the radio that there's there's been further uh, bird tax in nearby communities and that the military are going to intervene to solve this uh, issue and for myself I like that sort of open ended ending I mean the mist originally ends with them just driving off into the mist we don't have the you know terrible ending yes I know the ending which I know there's a lot of people out there who really love it but I never felt they deserved it and I just I, I just that. I the ending did me in you know that's the thing is like I was fine with the mist I know we're not yeah. talking about the mist and we'll we'll, we'll we'll get to the mist one day 
But it's similar in many ways when you yeah when you look at this final this yeah. finale though. But yeah, please carry on. Yeah, but I mean, like the Miss was one of those movies where I I I get your you know I get that why some people think that you know that ending is fine. I just don't like movies like that. Yeah, I just think movies like that is is just it just kind of like annuls everything. It's like you, that happened and then the big ending. You're like oh twist on a twist, you know type of thing, and you're like. And you're like, you know, you can't help but to kind of swear at the TV a little when you do that. It's like, what a waste of time, type of thing. Definitely so. And I think I love this uh, cut on YouTube. I'm not sure it was like a bonus feature, but it's like um, the original ending where it's just like the world of mist. And we keep, we basically have them kept off and we see like the big lumbering Leviathan coming through. And it's sort of like this idea that we've established a new order. And I think with the end of the birds, it's very much the same. It's sort of like they're going out and they're just like not trying to disturb the birds because there's a new order now and the birds are in charge but i think that you um, know i think that that's such a great way to end it too because you know throughout the other scenes there there had been moments of the, like this where obviously not with the great amount of birds that was at the final scene but it still had that moment that, you know, they were there, they were stalking, like, what's going to trigger them? What's going to get them to, you know, chase after you, to a sort of thing? And then you have this whole scene at the end where they're trying to leave the house, like, she's already been attacked, will they attack again because she's been attacked? Or, you know, what is, what's, what's the whole thing? You know, will the car trigger the birds? Or, you know, that sort of thing. And there's so many questions that that scene kind of builds up in tension just because of, just the sheer amount of birds at this point that you've seen and that scene alone having so many of them and whether you know if they go out with will this end is this like like you said a new new order and this is like the new world now the birds are (laughs) running the world (laughs) and Um. and i think that that's such a that's so clever to do that like i like open-ended like i i actually appreciate a lot of films horror films when they are open-ended if they give you some type of contemplation. And I think that this one does do that in that sense where, you know, you wonder what's going to happen next. Oh, will it hit San Francisco? Or will it, you know, will will something else happen? Or, you know, will they get out? Will they get it to, will they get to San Francisco? Because, you know, obviously the lead up in the radio was that they had already blocked off the road to Bodega Bay. And... Uh, and, and will they be able to get out, or will they be like forced to stay there, type of thing, right? Yeah, definitely. So it leaves it uh, very sort of open, um, which I think that's sometimes something that is the best thing to do. You know, don't give us the everything sort of wrapped up in a bow style ending. There was a sequel, uh, The Birds 2, Land's End, which was a TV movie. Tippi Hendren actually returned for it, but she's in a different role. Uh, while Rod Taylor as one of the final roles in his career would appear in the Killer Crow movie, Core, uh, before giving his final role as uh, Winston Churchill in Inglorious Bastards, which requires him just to sit in the corner and drink scotch, <laughs> which is a real hard day's work, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd say this is only the second, sort of second time I watched it in a very long sort of time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really I really enjoyed The Birds still. I think it was really great film as i say it's got that weird opening 40 minutes but once it gets uh gets going um and gets into the actual um creature feature stuff it's a really it's still a really good um good film i agree i mean i i don't really have a whole lot to to add to the whole thing but i mean i i 
as a creature feature and the concept that it uses, I, I really think it's it's so good because I think like, you know, birds are rarely used in creature features, I would say. Um, so I think it's it still has its unique stand. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because it's Hitchcock who did it, that people don't really want to touch that anymore because someone's already did something like that. It, yeah, it's certainly if you... Because they're obviously so front and centre, I mean, it is hard to, to hard to do anything with them, as you said, without obviously being compared to it. It's the same as if you do a shark movie; it's inevitably going to be compared to like or held up against Jaws. You either like creating a Jaws cash in, or you're trying to replicate what Jaws did. You just can't win either way. So, and even Jaws itself, it goes off on its weird tangents. It becomes like an adventure movie part way through. <laughs> At least Jaws 2 just stayed on track. But that's a discussion for another day. But yeah, I mean, we certainly talked about when we, we, when we talked about, like, with Hitchcock, they'd be a director that we would like to do more of. Whether In one way or another, I don't want to say that we're going to use our traditional format for it, but we would certainly do a season looking at Hitchcock movies. I think we both said it'd be something that we want to look at because there's films in his filmography that, I personally haven't seen and would like to see such as like North by Northwest um, and Vertigo and just to cross us off the filmography list so um, this isn't our first stop off with Hitchcock so if you enjoyed this episode please do let us know and let us know which Hitchcock movies we should be checking out as we would uh, love to do a Hitchcock season um, in the future and as you pointed out to me last night Kevin that Hitchcock is like one of the few directors who has a has such a distinct style that you know you say something's Hitchcockian, the same way that it's Cronenbergian or Lynchian. Um, there's very few directors that obviously have that such a distinct style as he does. Yeah, and I think that that's what makes him really worth discovering in the sense that it, I mean, it's it's hard because you know we're we're in the age where there's so much content to consume and there's so many things that are available to us, but I think that. W- sometimes it's nice to go back and you know without doing seasons like this i would never have really you know pushed myself to go back and watch the 60s horror or something you know you, you can barely get me to sit down and watch an 80s horror sometimes <laughs> let alone a six a 60s horror so i think it's it's really i think it is really interesting to to it would be quite i i don't know how to say like it would be really nice to see the trademarks that hitchcock has because obviously We've worked on a few directors right now that has a very distinctive style, and whether we like it or not, uh, they the styles really do shine in their in their filmography, and we've learned quite a bit, I guess, through the through the films and the retrospective of it. And I think Hitchcock would be one that's definitely very interesting to look at, just just for the fact that you know what is the Hitchcock style? It's not it's not going to be in the three films that I watch that I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... I mean, certainly when it comes to the the visual style, I mean, it's certainly something that we can, like, d- certainly dive into more. I mean, we obviously outlined at the start of this episode, like, some of the key ones, as I said, the, his love of blondes and MacGuffins and yeah. those sorts of simple things. I mean, him and William Castle had a very sort of... a career that sort of mirrored each other in many ways, whereas 
with Hitchcock, it was like the MacGuffin in his film. With William Castle, it was the MacGuffin that sold the movie, such as like when he did 13 Ghosts and you had the Ghost Viewer and you had like Coward Circle. I mean, William Castle himself would be a fascinating director to do just to go for all the gimmicks, such as like the Tingler, which was the electric shock under the seat to make you think that the Tingler was loose in the cinema. So, this is one definitely worth checking out. I think don't. I mean, the problem is, I'd say with, with Hitchcock, he's like, you know, Spielberg and Kubrick. He's this master director and I think it can be a little intimidating when you approach his works of like you know can you watch this as a sort of casual movie going I think with the birds and psycho you can these sort of movies you can definitely can they're very easy sort of to to get into sort of casual watches even if you don't normally watch a lot of film of this era because as you were saying can we both sort of as movie watchers we have like areas of and we sort of gravitate towards to and I don't think I watch a lot of sort of like this uh, classic sort of cinema, so it's kind of nice to occasionally um, go off and watch something like this. Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's uh, episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't done already, please do uh, hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. And then Spotify as well, you can also rate the show on there as well. Uh, just look for that star button. Uh, you can check out our feeds. We are on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and you can check out our blog, which is Movies Tea Podcast at WordPress.com. We've just got our full archive of episodes, including all our previous seasons to date, and more importantly, our Friday Film Club, where every Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to highlight, and sometimes a theme, sometimes it's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to talk about more of the cinema we love. But Kim, where to next on our season of Creature Features? Well, we're moving up a decade. We're going to the 1977, and we're going to be looking at Kingdom of the Spiders. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we get to talk about well, your fellow Canadians, William Shatner. I know, and I know. More recent <laughs> real life spaceman. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, we move from birds and killer ants to spiders as uh, when we check out Kingdom of Spiders, uh, which I'm I'm excited to uh, to watch. I know it's really schlocky, so I've got that appeal for it going for me already. So, but uh, that's coming up in the next episode. But until then, thank you for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Kingdom of the Spiders. But until then, good night. <laughs>